0: Hello from Hollywood. I'm Martin Grove, welcoming you to our Screen Dollars podcast, Box Office Autopsy. In today's conversation, we'll look at the marketplace and analyze how things are going and where they're going. Joining me on the line now is Screen Dollars box office guru, Dick Walsh. Between Dick's career in exhibition, including as film chairman of AMC Entertainment, and my own days talking about movies on CNN, Entertainment Tonight, and as a Hollywood reporter columnist, we've logged nearly a hundred years in Hollywood. That doesn't mean we're always right, but we've definitely got a few opinions to share. And we're back with another episode of Box Office Autopsy. Uh, Dick, this was a a good weekend in many ways at the box office.
1: Uh, Yes, it was. Uh, Once again, free guy uh, wins the weekend, falling only 34%, which for this summer... Is a remarkable hold. Uh, We remember back not too long ago, F9 dropped 65%, Black Widow dropped 67%, Suicide Squad dropped 72%. So this hold is remarkable in the era of pandemic and led to them winning the weekend at $18.8 million.
0: And remember, this is the weekend that some of the media people and some of the Wall Street people were saying, nobody's going to go to the movies, they've got the Delta variant, you've got a hurricane on the East Coast, you've got streaming competition, not for Free Guy, fortunately, but for other films. And so I think that the doomsayers got it wrong, as they usually do. Well, and...
1: You know uh paw Patrol uh, opened in uh, second position, and I think that was to be expected. The family picture uh did thirteen point three million dollars, and of the four opening pictures seemed to have uh, the most uh, going for it.
0: Well look uh, with
1: paw Patrol
0: once again, uh the media said that parents aren't going to risk taking their young kids and remember this is for little kids to the movies, the Delta variants out there. Nobody's going to take kids to the movies, and they did, because that's the only audience for Paw Patrol, is little kids with parents bringing them along, and $13 million was a very nice uh, uh, gross for that that picture. Uh, By the way, the music is an important part of it, and we have Alessia Cara talking about what went into composing and uh, recording and performing the music? Let's give a listen.
2: Mark. The Paw Patrol creators asked if I wanted to write a song. And it was like a turning point in the film, and I always wanted to make a song like this. Just jump away it's a story just about facing your fears and coming together, and made me want to be part of Paw Patrol with my dog, Leo. <laughs> this is so cool! I wrote the line, that's the use in trying. I felt like this movie would be so good to expand that sentiment. The The lyrics to me just mean life gets really difficult to navigate sometimes. But the point of trying is that on the other side of fear is where you learn the most about yourself. yourself
0: that was Alessia Cara talking about the music and Paw Patrol, all of which contributes to that nice environment in the picture that's great not only for kids, but that parents don't mind sitting through. Uh, in the past, you know, we've had so many kids' pictures that were, in, in Hollywood, referred to as parent punishers because parents were to sit through them.
1: Right, and uh, based on the TV show, this one had the most... Uh... Upfront knowledge about it and, and so goes on to win the weekend. Marty, that's about all the good news. The rest of the opening pictures.
0: Well, well, look, the, the, the good news is always good to, to talk, about, particularly uh, at times when everybody else is talking about the bad news, but even in the bad news, I'd like to suggest to you, because you're right, we do have three other pictures that opened this past weekend, and, and they didn't perform well, but I'd like to throw out for conversation the fact that it was not the Delta variant, it wasn't the streaming, it wasn't the hurricane. It was the pictures themselves that just weren't fresh, new, and and terrific pictures that people would want to see, I think, under any circumstances. Well,
1: this, this happens. Uh, the studio heads decide that they've got this picture. They don't know when to release it. And so we're going to hold it. We're going to hold it. We're going to figure out. We're going to give it its best possible shot. And sure enough, they pick a weekend where four pictures open after a weekend when three pictures open, giving us seven pictures in two weeks. Now I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to an enemy. Uh, invite them into a seven street uh, seven uh, picture uh, fight off for first place. But that's what seems to happen. And so you get four pictures. The late summer, a declining box office because kids are going back to school, college is beginning, and sure enough, there's only a marketplace for one or two to make it. We will say that Paw Patrol made it, but the protege didn't necessarily make it, nor nighthouse or reminiscence. Right.
0: Well, now, Protégé opened number seven for the weekend to about two million nine uh, via Lionsgate. Uh, and uh, a lot of people said, this is an action film. We've seen this film before. There's nothing new here. And yet a lot of people feel it was well done.
1: Well, I actually saw this picture with my wife last night. I've got to tell you, we both very much enjoyed the picture and one of the strong performances in the picture is Maggie Q. She carries the lead role, very believable, very action-oriented as her whole career has been. Right, she's the uh,
0: hit woman who's been trained since childhood how to carry out that job, and as a matter of fact, we have her talking right now, Dick, about the making of the movie. I
2: think that the the movie in its totality was a challenge for me. I mean, everything, it's sort of like the culmination of everything I've already done in my career, but not at this level, right? So the heightened emotion, the heightened action, you know, all of the, the, the complex relationships, you know, the really, the smart romance that kind of goes on in it. Um, there's nothing worse to me than um, than a kind of a, a dumbed down connection between two people. Like, I want to see really that sort of fireworks chemistry that comes from, real intelligence from two people who are playing a game. That to me is very interesting on screen. And so that, that this movie definitely had.
0: That was Maggie Q talking about uh, making of Protégé. Now uh, that was number seven, Dick, and uh, right behind it in eighth place, close behind, was the uh, nighthouse from Searchlight Pictures. And that also is 2 million nine, a little bit lower 2 million nine. Uh, it was an art house horror film, a strange uh, hybrid. Uh, Searchlight uh, reportedly paid twelve million dollars at uh, Sundance in twenty twenty to pick it up. Um, it got great reviews. What happened? Well, it's
1: it's the sixth uh, horror. It's the fifth horror film uh, since July second, and I think that we've gone to the well once too often in terms of trying to. Uh, get people to come out and see a horror picture. And, you know, we've got a Florida election going on there. It may finish 7th, <laughs> as high as 7th. They're like uh, $300,000 separating the two pictures. But uh, for buying it for $12 million, there's virtually no way they're going to make their money back.
0: Right, and, and that may be a close race, but our next opening, Reminiscence from Warner Brothers, that's two million even, uh, that, that's not even going to be in that horse race. Uh, and that was, again, uh, a picture that, that didn't really work. It had uh, big stars, a Hugh Jackman back again, Rebecca Ferguson, who's generally terrific, um, and it had a first-time writer-director, Lisa Joy. Let's listen to her talking about what it was like as a first-time director. She's well known from her uh, television work on Westworld, of course
2: as a director, I felt quite comfortable, even though it was my first time directing a film because of my experience on Westworld. Um, but I directed an episode there, but I'd also produced and edited so many that I was somewhat accustomed to, it was, it was almost like an incubator where I would, where I would make movie week after week after week and learn so many lessons from doing that. So that was, um, It made the transition much easier for me, especially also because I was working with some of the same incredible collaborators I have on Westworld. My DP, Paul Cameron, Howard Cummings, um, Brian Macklite, who I'd worked with before in stunts and Ramin in music. It was like just working with people I knew so well and had the shorthand with.
0: That was Lisa Joy talking about being a first-time director. And, and you know, Dick, I think it's worth pointing out that even though reminiscence has not worked, in Hollywood, it doesn't matter for the career of those uh, people uh, who have made the uh, picture, because Lisa Joy has now established herself as somebody who could get a big film made. This picture reportedly cost $68 million to make, and she's made the film, and it looks good. Uh, it didn't work, but that's uh, not entirely her fault at all. Uh, a lot of factors there. So she'll
1: go on to, uh, to make more movies. Well, and I agree with you. And the other, the other factoid that comes out of the picture is that Hugh Jackman, who has done just under $3 billion in North American box office, has had his fourth uh, bomb in a row. Now, I'm not calling the end of Hugh Jackman's career at this point. Hugh Jackman, Hugh Jackman will be back. He will he will be the frontline actor that we've come to love in Logan and X-Men and also his last hit, which uh, actually uh, was one of his strengths, The Greatest Showman in 2017.
0: Yeah, I mean that was probably the last, you know, big hit for him. Uh, but look, uh, actors' careers uh, have peaks and valleys, and uh, and hopefully peaks again. So yes, I would not count uh, Hugh Jackman out. Uh, definitely not. But uh, Reminiscence, uh, I think, will disappear. And and you know, it also seemed to me, Reminiscence, of course, is playing on uh, HBO Max streaming. Uh, as part of Warner Brothers uh you know entire 2021 slate streaming and that's the kind of film maybe people say you know I, I don't think i need to run out and see that in a theater because you know it just kind of sounds like a film that will play nicely on uh on my large uh, media room screen it's not the size of an IMAX theater screen but it's big and, uh, and I'll see it at home. I think that that's the kind of picture maybe that gets lost in the shuffle here.
1: Yeah, and uh, had had uh, Reminiscence not ever come out, I don't think distribution uh, and or exhibition would have felt like they had missed a big chance. Uh, they, they swung for the fences, uh, and, uh, you know, God bless them for making the picture, and... Uh, we we hope them nothing but the best, but it certainly did not resonate in its first week. Right, and, and not everything works, of course,
0: uh, and that's true in uh, pre-pandemic times as well as uh, the pandemic era that we're that we're just getting through now. But uh, but look, there's always the future, and there's always another picture on the horizon now. This time, looking to next weekend, there's only one new opening, and that's from Universal, Candyman, the reboot. And uh, to begin uh, talking about it, I want to just play the uh, soundbite we have with Jordan Peele, who is the co-writer and co-producer of the picture. And uh, Jordan Peele talks about the 1992, <clears throat> excuse me, the 1992 original uh, Candyman.
2: The original Candyman. Um, uh, directed, written, directed by Bernard Rose, uh, based on a story by Clive Barker, Um, was, is one of uh, my favorites. It's a very influential movie for me, Um, mainly because uh, I believe it came out in 1992, um, so I would have been like 13. And uh, this was, I was a horror fan and we didn't have a black Freddy. We didn't have a black Jason. We loved, we identified with Freddy and Jason. But when Candyman came along, it felt very, um, it felt very daring, um, and it felt very uh, cathartic, um, and it was terrifying. Um, so, th- this was w- one of the movies that told me we, we can, um, that that black people can be in horror, um, even though there there are, uh, you know, many examples. Of black people in horror movies. This was this was one for me that felt particularly badass.
0: That was Jordan Peele talking about 1992's Candyman, now rebooted and on the horizon, opening next weekend at about 3,400 theaters.
1: So we we look at this, and now this will be the sixth horror flick since July 2nd, and again, once more, going to the well now. This one has a lineage uh, out there that, uh, of course, Jordan Peele, uh, who people got familiar with in uh, Get Out and also Us, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the universal collaboration that they've made. So uh, can he, going out by himself with one title next weekend, find an audience, Uh, that has been severely uh, gone after in the last six weeks. Well, we're going to be back next weekend to uh, tell you what happened.
0: So for now, thanks, Dick, for joining us and uh, dissecting the box office. Let's do it again next week. I'll see you then. Time now for our film flashback look at what was happening in Hollywood right around now, way back then. Let's set today's time travel dial for August 27th, 1882. Most of the pioneers who started the film business about 120 years ago are unfamiliar names today. Samuel Goldwyn is an exception, but for the wrong reason. People recognize Goldwyn as Metro Goldwyn Mayer's middle name, but don't realize he was never part of MGM. Actually, Goldwyn wasn't even the legendary producer's birth name, and August 27, 1882 wasn't really his birthday, although he always said it was. No one knows the real date, but it's agreed he was born in Warsaw and anglicized his name to Samuel Goldfish. In 1913, as a successful New York glove salesman, he became interested in making movies. With difficulty, Sam convinced his then brother-in-law, Jesse Lasky, that there was big money in films. They began by producing the first feature film ever made in Hollywood, The Squaw Man, Sam stayed in New York to sell the distribution rights. From the start, Sam was a difficult partner no matter whom he partnered with. He enjoyed fighting just for the sake of fighting, even with people who agreed with him. This led to big problems when Lasky merged with Adolf Zucker's famous players. Zucker was president of both FPL and its distribution arm. Goldfish was chairman of FPL which later adopted its distributor's name, Paramount Pictures. By August 1916, Zucker and Goldwyn's relationship had deteriorated so badly that Zucker gave Lasky an ultimatum. Either Goldfish goes or Zucker goes. In September, Goldfish was voted out and sold his shares for $900,000. Two months later, Sam had new partners, Broadway producers Edgar and Archibald Selwyn, and a new company called Goldwyn Pictures. A joke at the time had it that the other combination of their names would have been Selfish Pictures. By December 1918, Sam had legally changed his own name to Goldwyn. Sam's Goldwyn Pictures presidency ended in September 1920 when he lost a vote of confidence in a dispute with Chairman Joe Godsell, who originally put together the company that now boasted a unique Lion's Head logo and a large Culver City, California studio. When Goldwyn Pictures was acquired in April 1924 by theater magnate Marcus Lowe and merged with Lowe's Metro Pictures and Louis B. Mayer's small production company to form MGM, Sam had been out of Goldwyn Pictures for about four years. His future wasn't as a studio executive, but as a producer of memorable movies, including The Best Years of Our Lives, which won Best Picture and seven other Oscars in 1947, and the classic 1955 musical, Guys and Dolls. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another box office autopsy next week. In Hollywood for Screen Dollars, I'm Martin Grove.